Good evening and welcome to this episode of The Mary Trump Show. I am really happy to have as my guest tonight, David Korn, journalist, commentator, uh, Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones, uh, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. I'm almost certain his latest book will be on that list as well, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. David Korn, it is so good to have you. How is it going, Publication Week? Congratulations. Well, you know what it's like. There's a lot of anxiety at the beginning of the week because you just don't know how a book is going to be received. Right. Except you knew how your first book was going to be received. Uh, but most of us don't. Um, <laughs> and particularly with this book, this was a, uh, a historical exercise. I look at the last 70 years of the Republican Party's relationship with far-right fanaticism and how the GOP again and again, encouraged and exploited extremism. And so, I mean, I, I was trying to answer, I was interested in how we got to the point we're at today, believing that Donald Trump was no aberration, but more a culmination or continuation. Um, and so I really spent the last year in history land, reading history books, going looking at presidential archives, magazine articles and newspaper articles from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and felt, you know, part of my life felt detached from what goes on day in, day out on Twitter, Facebook, right. and the work I do at Mother Jones, breaking stories, editing stories on a, on a daily, weekly basis. And so I was in this alternative universe, and I didn't really, I think, realize I know I didn't realize uh, how timely and relevant this book would be when it landed. You know, with, with the whole conversation about what MAGA extremism means and what it means to the Republican Party, what is the Republican Party now, and the debate over whether or not this is a form of fascism, whether Donald Trump is leading the country towards fascism. Um, the book really show, you know, gives you all the historical context you need to participate in that debate and have a foundational understanding that allows you to look at today with something more than what happened in the last five seconds. Uh, and so I'm kind of, you know, now we're a few days into the book's release, but prior to that, I didn't know if it would be received that way. And if it would, you know, can, cause it's not, it doesn't have breaking news about Donald Trump's latest stupid thing. He said, like, I want to buy the moon. Right. Um, it's, you know, it's how we got here and you just don't know if that's going to find an audience. But I think because of the, this discussion we're having and I, the reaction from reviewers, from, you know, hosts on MSNBC, from readers and people who have gotten book quickly on social media, it's been really reaffirming, you know, yeah. uh, the, the first, that initial anxiety kind of passed in, in, after a day or two of seeing how the book was being received. And even, and kind of particularly what's been interesting to me is how the recovering Republicans, as I call them, are looking at the book. And I'm talking about Joe Scarborough and, and Charlie Sykes and Rick Wilson, and they've all, I've, I've talked to them, I've been on shows with all of them, I was on Morning Joe, and they've all been very, very respectful, and they, 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 they've looked at the book and have taken the argument and the, the story I tell seriously. It's made them rethink, I think, some of their past love for the Republican Party. Really? Uh, it, I mean, to me, this is one of the most interesting things, because I, I was on with Joe, and there's a story in the book about a moment when Dwight David Eisenhower, when he was campaigning for president in 52, almost disavowed Joe McCarthy and what was essentially the QAnon of his day. Yep. And he wanted to do it. He thought Joe McCarthy was a liar and a scoundrel and was divisive and ruining American politics and also attacking people who were very close to uh uh, Eisenhower, yeah. right? And he wanted to do it, and then he was convinced. And he, he asked a speechwriter to put it, put a you know a paragraph in a speech in which it would be a, a denunciation of of Joe McCarthy and his red baiting. And then at the last moment, he took it out when other Republicans said to him, "You can't do this. It will split the party. It will make it harder to win the state of Wisconsin where McCarthy was from. Harder 
to win Catholic voters who are particularly supportive of Joe McCarthy. And this brave commander who won World War II that's right. You know, beat the Nazis with the daring invasion of Normandy, which you now was not guaranteed to succeed. Right? We know. You know. Now we look at it, go. Oh, yeah, we won. But at the time, no one knew that would happen. It could have been yeah. a you know a tre- tremendous failure. Right. Um, he said, "Okay, take it out," and he didn't do that. And he kind of affirmed McCarthyism even even when he was running for president. And so, Joe, you know, going back to Joe Scarborough, Joe on the air talking about this you know, chapter in my book says it was incredibly disappointing to him because he worships Ike. Ike is a hero. And to see that he didn't have the courage to do this. Um, So in some ways, I mean, I didn't write the book as a wake up call for Republicans, Mm -hmm. uh, but I think some of them are looking at this uh, and accepting what for them would be revisionism that the Republican party, well, everyone knew they were kooks, the role of the kooks, I, I put front and center here and being much more of a defining element of the Republican Party than a lot of Republicans have wanted to believe. Yeah. And and David, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, part, uh, that scene with um, Eisenhower, because there are moments like that strung throughout the book and history and these close calls where people could have made the right decision and time after time refused to. And I think it's it's by by shining a light on those personal moments. I mean, Marshall wasn't just a great general. He was also somebody Ike respected and considered a friend, right? And, yeah, we're talking about George C. Marshall. Oh, I'm was, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Marshall, yeah. Yeah, yeah George C., who, who was uh, another general in World War II, but he became Secretary of State, helped save Europe with the Marshall Plan, and then was Secretary of Defense under Truman. And he was the target of McCarthy's attack. McCarthy accused this war hero of being part of a subversive secret plot working with Moscow to, you know, a conspiracy so immense, that was McCarthy's words, to describe this cabal that Marshall was apparently leading to destroy America from inside. And I, and, and that was something, you know, and he was a buddy of Eisenhower's. They were very close. And Eisenhower would still not stand up to McCarthy on this point. And I think the reason that matters in, in the context of your uh talking about with uh, people like Scarborough and Rick Wilson is one that why don't people know their history better? Um, (laughs) There's that, but in order for us to move beyond the uh, insanity you write about to the extent that's possible, recovering Republicans need to face these things squarely and admit that either they were wrong or they were mistaken or they were deceived somehow and refuse to um, participate in this kind of bargain that's always been made in the past on the right. Do you think that's possible? Well, what you're talking about is a reckoning. I mean, history yes. always demands reckonings, right? We've, we yep. we see that with many aspects of American history. You know, you just look at slavery. Slavery is the obvious one. You can see what happened with Germany and the German, you know, and all the Europeans, uh, countries with colonialism. It came up with the death of the queen. You know, history demands reckonings. And so, you know, this is a moment somewhat for a Republican reckoning uh, for those who haven't joined the cult. Right. Because everything that Trump is doing was done previously yeah. by, by, by the Republican Party. You know, you can go back to um, John Boehner embracing the Tea Party. John Boehner, the most country club Republican that ever existed. I mean, literally, he mm-hmm. wanted to legislate and then get to the country club. Right. You know, and he wanted to cut deals, big bargains on legislation. And, you know, he was, you know, from a conservative perspective, yes. But he embraced the Tea Party when the essence of the Tea Party literally was that Barack Obama, first black president, was a secret socialist Muslim who had a secret plan to destroy the American economy so he could then impose a totalitarian dictatorship and essentially essentially be 
emperor. I mean, this was said at Tea Party rallies throughout the country, and it was said on Glenn Beck's Fox show by Glenn Beck, a Tea Party leader, ex-officio, almost every night. Right. And John Boehner and Sarah Palin went, and other Republicans went on his show. They validated him. They authenticated him. And they were all screaming about concentration camps being set up by Obama. I don't think we've had, you know, they ever got around to making them with the, with the um, stimulus money and death panels and everything else. Mm-hmm. And Boehner was saying, this is fine. He was, he was hosting tea party rallies on the Capitol where people held anti-Semitic and racist signs where they spat, spat upon uh, black members of Congress when they walked by uh, yep. at one of these rallies, when they were shouting Nazis, Nazis, Nazis about Democrats. These are at rallies that Boehner and other House Republicans uh, appeared at and, uh, and actually legitimated by, by being part of the invitation. And so, so Boehner wanted all this energy, these votes, this money, coming in to, so he could become speaker and he embraced this stuff. I mean, you know, there's obviously a direct line from the tea party craziness and racism and bigotry and hated hatred and tribalism to, to Trump taking advantage of, of this. But, you know, you can keep going back from the tea party to Sarah Palin, uh, from Sarah Palin to the religious right and to Rush Limbaugh and Newt Gingrich. Uh, you know, it goes back and back back and back you know there is this 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 thread that unites all these errors and the republicans thought they could you know for decades they could do this on the side they can keep it to this you know side and get the benefits without being branded and it's you know it's a little bit of the frankenstein uh monster story um they both encouraged and exploited uh, this paranoia and, and hatred um, but they did it with the Birchers in the early mm-hmm. 60s and McCarthyism in the 50s. Yeah, and I want to get to um, where that leads us. But before we do that, I just I just want, one, I want people to know that this, I think this is an essential read. It's a, it's a really important book. And despite the fact that, especially I think for those of us who subscribe to reality, mm-hmm. it's an incredibly frustrating and at times demoralizing exploration of our history, but it is so beautifully written that I'm um, seriously, it's it, the subject matter is difficult, but it's a compelling read and it, like I, I read it very quickly and um, it was so easy to take in despite the fact that a lot of the information is deeply unpleasant and troubling. Um, and I, I wanted to focus on two things you do because it, uh, it kind of surprised me <laughs> that despite, you know, I've lived through a lot of this history and yet in experiencing it, it never seemed like this unbroken line of uh, racism and co-opting Nazis and all that other stuff on the right. It seemed like there were periods of time when it, the craziness on the right kind of went away and then it was increased, but it, it's never gone away. It's always been there. It's always been leading us to this moment. And concurrently with that, we have this almost uh, compulsion in the media to normalize things. And maybe that's why it becomes so difficult to see what's really going on. Because if you, you know, before I read this book, I would have said, oh yeah, things are definitely worse under Donald. And it's not true. The only thing that's different is that he's so open about it. Exactly. It's interesting to hear for me to hear you talk about your reaction because, you know, like you, (laughs) and I'm sorry that, you know, we're we're this old, I lived through a lot of this too. And, you know, it became, as I was doing this book, you know, I 
started working in Washington in, in 87, but I started as a journalist in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And there came a point in time where I was re- reading and researching matters that I, some of them I covered at the time, or I at least read about at the time, and I was somewhat familiar with, and some things I had absolutely forgotten. Sometimes I had forgotten that I had written about some of this stuff, and I would come across things that I had written much earlier. Uh, but you're right in that I did not realize how steady this uh, and consistent this line is from point A to B to C. I mean, it zigzags, as I wrote it right in the book, it zigzags a bit mm-hmm. and there, you know, it's it waxes and it wanes, you know, but it's all, but it's, but it's always there. And it, it is a lesson that often you don't, you know, it's, it's hard to see the forest when you're, within the trees right right and you know you you know as you're walking through it you see each tree and but you don't get the full picture and the way i think we you know we live our lives individually and collectively is that it's episodic and it's hard to sort of see sometimes the themes that are moving us along the currents if you want to use the river as a metaphor uh but when you and, and to me, that was part of the value of this, of the exercise of writing this book is, and, and it became so obvious. I mean, that was the thing to me. It wasn't yeah. like, Oh, look, I found a hidden treasure. No, this is hiding in plain sight. It's on the front pages. It's in all these other books, but no one's ever presented it this way. It wasn't as if I had to find classified records and then steal them to my, you know, summer home or winter home and, um, and, and look at them. And I was, and, and I started the project because I was interested in the subject of the, you know, and I, and I wondered if anybody had done a book of this nature. And there are people like Rick Perlstein who, who, who've done tremendous political histories of this country, yep. um, a series of books and others that, overlaps and, and gets at some of this, but no one took this as a organizing principle. Mm-hmm. I didn't find a book that did that. So I said, well, I should, I should write this book. Um, but you know, your other point is, yes, we do tend to normalize things, you know, and we, you know, we even go back and we, we've normalized George W. Bush who left the presidency. I think his approval rating was like 21, 22% yep. because of, because of the, you know, complete disaster with the Iraq war, which, you know, a gigantic majority of Americans had reached that conclusion that it was a tragedy. It should not have happened. And that it was needless and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis had died and several thousand Americans for no good reason. And Mm -hmm. so, but now we see him palling around with Michelle Obama, you know, normalized. Right. And, you know, you can look at, you know, and I understand the affection and affinity on the right for Ronald Reagan. I didn't, I don't feel it. I didn't feel it at the time, but I, I understand why it, that it's there and I get it. I recognize it, but you know, when I'm writing this book, I see that he ran, you know, he, when he ran for president in 79 and 80, one of the key things that got him elected was his embrace of the new right and the religious right, the moral majority. And at the time, Jerry Fowell, leading the moral majority, was basically saying publicly that gay America, gay people wanted to kill other Americans. That there was a go. They, they, these people, you know, if they could kill you by looking at you, they would. And there were members of the moral majority, officials, leaders in the leadership ranks, who were out there saying that homosexuality could be punished with death. According, you know, the people, the, mm-hmm. the gays and lesbians should could be executed. And, you know, th- that's Christian fundamentalism. People can take or leave it. What, you know, but, but to have a president embracing these people and praising Jerry Falwell as a spiritual leader of America, while his organization is literally promoting violence against other Americans, uh, that's something that we don't think about when we think about Ronald Reagan. We just don't, you know, it's like just put to the side. And he won in 1980 uh, because the evangelical vote had shifted from being about two-thirds for Jimmy Carter in 1976 to being, you know, about the same amount, two-thirds for mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan in 1980. It just totally flipped. And yeah. Lou Harris, a very important pollster back then, said that 
that was what accounted for Ronald Reagan's victory. So he did this, it worked, and it validated people who were preaching, you know, violence and hatred, extremists. I don't know what else you would call them. Yeah, and I think Reagan is a really good example of somebody who actually embraced the extremism and had for a very long time. I mean, you could argue that that others like Eisenhower and George W. Bush, uh, George H. W. Bush certainly were trying to use uh, the energy behind the extremism to get the base. They didn't necessarily buy into it, but Reagan mm-hmm. did. And we knew this, or we should have known this. Yeah. And yet it's, it's still not part of his legacy, if you want to call it well, that. Yeah. And one thing that I didn't realize at the time, and I was there, you know, I was, I was still in co- college, but I was covering politics was that Jimmy Carter a couple of times in the general election of 1980 after the convention, tried to raise the issue of Ronald yeah. Reagan's connections to extremists. And that included uh, racists a- as well. Um, the moral majority was taking out ads against Jimmy Carter saying that he was not a good Christian. Can you right. imagine? I mean, Jimmy Carter, Sunday school teacher, not right. a good Christian, and that he had betrayed the South. I mean, so these are really hateful ads, and and, and Reagan's in, in bed with these people, and he's also speaking, uh, you know, talking about states' rights in in, in Mississippi, uh, basically yep. winking at racists and white supremacists, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Carter, you know, in the very kind of namby pamby way, you know, you know, which said a few <laughs> times, you know, we got we can't have extremism in American politics. You know, he you know, very, very gentle pokes at Ronald Reagan for being associated with some of these extremists. And the press, the political media killed Jimmy Carter over that's this. Right. They said, you're being mean. I mean, literally, that's the word yep. that you Are you you running a mean campaign? Are you accusing Ronald Reagan of being a racist and of running a racist campaign? And it was done with such vigor and force that the Carter campaign completely caved on this. They said, no, 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 we don't mean that. No, 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 no. And, but, you know, he he took a few stabs at it. And, you know, the press at the time was, this is out of bounds. It was okay for the moral majority to question his, his his faith and for Reagan to praise the moral majority, but for him to raise the issue of Reagan's connections to extremism, which also go back 20 years to the early yep. 60s when he was saying if we passed Medicare, the country would become a, a Soviet state and we'd, be, we'd have no freedom in within 10 years, that freedom right. would be gone. I mean, he was stoking the right-wing paranoia is, is one of the loudest voices mm-hmm. back in the, in the early sixties. Um, you know, so, you know, not only have we forgotten some of this at the time, it wasn't even allowed to be part of the conversation. Yeah. And I want to clarify or expand on, on how I framed this earlier. I, I talked about the media's need to normalize or the, the media's, um, always seeming to want to normalize the extremism on the right and concurrent with that is, is an, you just pointed out an example of this is the double standard <laughs> that uh, Democrats are held to and how time and again, when, when Democrats do stand up and try to point out what's going on with candidates like Reagan or Bush or Donald, uh, they get vilified, you know, from from what happened with Carter to what happened with Michael Dukakis to what happened with Hillary Clinton and her aptly described basket of deplorables. You know, Democrats can't seem to get a break when they try to shine a light. And instead of being about the extremism that's being peddled, Mm -hmm. it becomes about how rude they are to point it out. And that gets to a, a key point that I try to address in the book. Name again, American Psychosis. My publisher says, make sure you do that all the time. Um, <laughs> but the point I, I try to address in the book, that there is an asymmetry here between the left and the Democrats and the right and the Republicans. Um, you know, a lot of people will 
hear about the book and say, oh, everyone does this, both sides, da-da-da-da-da. Democrats have their kooky stuff as well. Well, the the response to that is not really. Yeah. While there are and have always been on both the left, the far left, or whatever, the far and the far right, um, extreme ideas, conspiracy theories, inaccurate ideas, um, you can't find an instance of senior Demi- Democrats, leading Democrats, presidential candidates, senators, presidents, making common cause with far left kooks who are promoting conspiracy theories like QAnon or John Birch stuff in the 60s. It just it just doesn't exist. Right. Um, in fact, there was one member of the House named Cynthia McKinney who promoted the 9-11 conspiracy theory and the Democrats disavowed her and she ended up losing her primary election next time around, largely because of that. Um, But on the Republican side, you see time and time again, Republicans embracing bigots, people promoting paranoia, extremism, stoking fears and demagoguery. And I think it's very hard for the media to understand this basic asymmetry. They want, you know, their anthropological position is, you know, you know, both sides are equal. Yep. And both sides are equally good, both sides are equally bad. And we don't, you know, tilt the scales one way or the other. But if one side is doing something and the other side isn't, they have and that's not a good thing, mm-hmm. um, they have a very hard time processing that. And you know, there are some really easy examples in that look at the 1988 campaign george hw bush questioned michael dukakis's patriotism said he wasn't a real american he didn't like the flag and he joined the asou he kind of demonized him in you know the way that the far right would what mm-hmm. did george, what did michael dukakis say i don't like george hw bush's policies his policies are wrong. I can create more jobs and better wages than he can. I mean, and that kind of sums it up. You don't have, you know, a House speaker on the on the Democratic side like Newt Gingrich who promoting Vince Foster conspiracy theories. Right. There is no there is nobody on the left who plays the role of Vince Foster. Excuse me, plays the role of Newt. Got it. I'll get it the third time. Plays the role of <laughs> plays the role of Rush Limbaugh, right. promoting Vince Foster conspiracy theories, who's who who then is is echoed by Newt Gingrich and others, and and actually deemed a unofficial member of the House Republican Caucus. You just can't find this of the Democrats and the left. And Nancy Pelosi has never embraced you know, a, a completely wacko, unproven conspiracy theory time and time again. So uh, this asymmetry is very hard to the press to cover. And if I write about it and talk about it, it's hard to not come across as being hyperbolically partisan. Yeah, that's very easy. Well, you're just doing this because you're a liberal and you're a progressive. You like Democrats and they it's very easy to say that's why you're doing this. You know, it's, you know, what about is How come you're not saying those Democrats? Well, if one side is breaking the law, is robbing banks, and one side is depositing money in the bank, <laughs> it's not, you don't cover them equally. That That's true. And, and that gets at what I think is one of the more dangerous uh, aspects of this that we're dealing with. Um, when... We talk about the base, and I I mean, everybody does this because this is what we call it, right? The Republican base, the Democratic base. We we sort of um, equate them because we don't define them. We just say the base. And yet it's important (laughs) to define them because they are not equivalent. The Democratic base is essentially uh, women of color, um, you know, uh, college-educated it's more urban. The Republican base is a bunch of neo-Nazi misogynist anti-Semites. So it's it, racist anti-Semites. So we get um, painted into a corner by the right's ability 
to take advantage of sort of media laziness in that regard, but also their ability to co-opt language so that when we respond, it just seems like name calling. You know, they say we're yeah. fascist and then they actually are fascist. So when we say yeah. it, though, it ta- the sting is taken out of it. No, I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, a couple of times in the last six months, I've written pieces about, you know, fascism and the use of the word fascism, because I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a screamer. And I know if you use that word, it, it, to some people, you just, you, you've gone too far. Right. You've just gone too far. They right. turn off and now you look like you're the extremist, right? Because you're yeah. calling someone a fascist. When, you know, if you sit down and think about it, somebody who doesn't, you know, who, who doesn't respect democracy, wants to overturn an election, encourages violence, and now says he will pardon the people who beat the crap out of cops in order to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And it's not just, it's not just that Trump says this, he is still supported by the entirety of the Republican party. They all say that if he runs, they will support him. So he remains the leader of the Republican party. And so you look at that, those set of facts, these are actual circumstances. And you say, how is that not somewhat fascist ish you know <laughs> how, yeah how is that you know, it, 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 you know how, what are you waiting for um right and you know and that so it becomes hard to talk about and i but i do think you know part of the problem is if you go back to the history i i i, I recount in the book you see that again and again and again republicans have got gotten away with it now when sarah palin you know, was accusing Barack Obama of being a terrorist and people were screaming, uh, communist, communist, and kill him at her rallies. Well, they lost. McCain and Palin lost. It didn't, that, you know, that didn't work. It doesn't always work. But right. at the same time, she was not drummed out of the political media world. She ended up making a nope. shitload of money yep. and did all these TV shows with mainstream networks. Um, she ran again recently and, and lost, but she, you know, Palinism continued onward, and there was never like a you know, sort of a full accounting in the media of all this, and and it led very quickly. I mean, she ran in two thousand eight. The Tea Party came up in two thousand nine, right. and the media again is not you know, is not out there saying, "Oh, this is a continuation," and these people are complete kooks and extremists and it's not just you know here's the right and here's the left um and so we keep you know we you know kind of replaying this stuff over and over again and and i and i think the media was very uh slow to understand the extremism of of donald trump uh because they were taken with the carnival barker element of his candidacy but when he's out there I, I, this is, you know, I could have, you know, you could write a whole book on, on your uncle, but uh, what I, I picked some highlights for this yep. book. But when he's out there campaigning in the fall of 2015 and someone at a rally shouts, you know, kick out all Muslims or ban all Muslims, kick them out, throw them out. And he goes, you know, a lot of people say that we're going to look into that. Right. I mean, how is that not fascism? I mean, you're talking about throwing people out of the country on the basis of their religion. And, you know, it's, you know, the media is taken up again by the horse race, by the celebrity, by the bells and whistles. He went on the, the, you know, the show uh, of Alex Jones, the the notorious, crazy, very hateful um, conspiracy theorist. And I, I think I was one of the few people to write about it and that it was just horrendous to be on. And he praised Alex Jones. Um, so, you know, I think the, the lesson here is that we often don't see, as I noted earlier, these, these currents that are driving us and, you know, he didn't create it. He didn't create this current Republicans before him conditioned the base, you know, and, and exploited the base. And so it was happening in the base transactionally to want to want this stuff and want more of this stuff. Right. And so he came along and said, I'm, you know, I'm going to intensify what's been happening. And, and, you know, I guess at the time it was an open question how well it would hit, but it hit very well. 
Yeah. And just really quickly, I, I realized I forgot to mention your excellent newsletter, This Land. Um, and I think you were referencing the, a couple of pieces you recently wrote for that. Uh, so people should check that out, too, uh, in addition to American Psychosis. Um, and one of the one of the things and you, you write about this, too, it Donald went on Alex's Jones show after Alex Jones claimed falsely and evilly that uh, Sandy Hook was a false flag operation uh, to gin up support for gun control or something. Yeah. I don't know. The guy's so horrible. And I think what we see and that that your narrative leads us to is that, for example, as you said, Palin and McCain didn't, the ticket didn't succeed. Obviously, Palin succeeded personally. But it just serves to soften the ground so that mm -hmm. when the more obviously extreme or not, not more extreme, but more openly extreme, yeah. like Donald, it just, you know, that's just sort of the way it is. And we kind of see this with the parties, the Republicans are kind of expected to be bad in the ways they're bad. So it's not news. Mm -hmm. um, and the Democrats are always expected to be conciliatory and to make compromises. And when they do, when that doesn't happen, it's their mm -hmm. responsibility, yeah. uh, which really puts us in a bind, doesn't it? Well, you know, I didn't use the phrase Overton window in the book because it, it, it's become a gigantic cliche, right. but that, but that is what you see happening. Um, if you go back through the decades, I mean, Newt Gingrich came into office uh, leadership uh, in, in the House around the same time Rush Limbaugh was rising to prominence, preaching hatred and demagoguery and dehumanizing and demonizing the opposition, the Democrats and liberals and feminazis and, and yeah. environmentalists, tree huggers and everything else. Um, and he went out there and said, we have to make a case that the, the Democrats and he you know, his PAC put this out in a memo to to Republican candidates that they're radical, they're traitorous, they 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 they're they're enemies. They are anti-children. They are anti the United States. He put up a whole list of words to use, yeah. and okay, so and you're telling your base this as well that this is what we think of the other side. So obviously, can't make deals. And he told you know um, in '94 that in 96 that they were going to run against bill clinton noting that he was not a normal person not a normal american um, this is before even the monica Lewinsky stuff right. so um they're you know they're they're vilifying the other side again and, and then and then sarah you know palin comes along in you know 2008 and says that barack obama is a terrorist and and you can just see Look at it from the basis perspective. Okay, yeah. your, your your Republican leaders in the '90s are saying that you know that that Bill Clinton killed and and Hillary they killed Vince Foster or they may have covered up his murder and that they're not normal people and the Democrats are anti children and anti God and anti all this and then you know you know George H W Bush. You know, had, had said that Michael Dukakis wasn't a good patriot, and then you know, Sarah Palin says uh, that Barack Obama is a terrorist and a socialist and a communist, and he basically wants to pose a tyrannical state in the United States. And the Tea Party says what it says about Obama being a secret socialist Muslim wants to destroy the country. So you keep doing this; they keep kind of upping the ante, and the base. You know, what do you? they need a new fix. It's like being a junkie in some ways. And mm -hmm. so in 2016, you have these 15 Republican candidates who are out there saying, I have a good tax plan. Oh, I have a better education plan. I was the education governor. Oh, I want to talk about housing policy or my foreign policy is better. And Donald Trump says, don't you get it? There are Muslims who are trying to kill us. We got to get rid of them. And the base says, we're not looking for better tax policy. You've been telling us for years that the Democrats want to destroy this country, that they're right. secret connivers who want to take away Christianity and build concentration camps and they have death panels. So if they, if I don't die because of a death panel, they're going to lock me up. And you, they've been saying this for years and you can't undo that. 
You can't say now we're going to go back to debating whether Bobby Jindal or Jeb Bush is better on capital gains. I mean, that's, you know, so it's, yeah. that's what I mean when I say that, you know, that, that Donald Trump was not an aberration. He was a continuation, a culmination. You know, he just, you know, threw all the niceties aside and said, okay, I'm going to, you know, like, like I want to mainline this stuff for you. I got the good stuff here. It's not cut. It's not, you know, you know, uh, you know it's not uh, watered down. I'm going to give you the bloodiest red meat I can give you. But it's only because the taste for red meat had been uh, both enhanced and, 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 and cultured and catered to by Republicans for decades. Yeah, but what's amazing is that it seems, well, either the base is bigger than we thought or um, more people hold abhorrent views than we would have liked uh, because Donald did get 12 million more votes yeah. in 20. No, I think, <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I think it's pretty scary. I think that... Um, you know, not, you know, not everyone, you know, there are people who just vote Republican because they're Republican and there are people right. who vote for him because they hate Hillary. Right. Um, it's 2016. They hate Joe Biden. You know, so, you know, what you might call what, what the Republicans themselves used to call the kooks. You know, if you're trying to discern the kooks, you look at polling and you see, you know, how many of them believe in birtherism, how many believe the election was stolen. Yeah. And I don't know. It varies, but anywhere, you know, sometimes half of the Republican, you know, people who are self-identified Republicans. Now, that's still tens of millions of Americans. And it's a problem in a democracy to have so many Americans, so many citizens detached from reality. So you can't even have a discussion with them. You can't talk about the sky because they say it's green and, and when it's blue. Um, and so what are you doing? And, and, and democracy, particularly if they have disproportionate political power because mm -hmm. of gerrymandering and the way this, the, the Senate is structured and the Electoral College. Um, and I, you know, you know, going back again to my book, because that's why we're here, but American Psychosis, trying to figure out how we move ahead as a country, understanding part of this um history here, I think is very uh, uh, helpful because you get to see, okay, a it wasn't as if a switch was flipped in right. 2016. This stuff is deeply rooted and maybe too deep to be pulled out, yanked out with one election or one good commercial or you know, one good, you know, strategy. And so then what, what do you do? Uh, my, the word that keeps coming to me is segregation. I don't mean physical segregation. I don't mean racial segregation. I mean, if there are 30, 40, 50 million Americans who are not attached to reality, you're not going to reattach them by right. and large. You know, a few on the margins you can. You can right. gain a few, but you, you can't. Uh, you can't, you know, you can't convince them because trying to convince them only proves to them that you're devious, yep. right? So how can you segregate them politically, culturally, you can't, you know, can't go through them. How can you go around them? You know, you look at the Dobbs decision, what's happening with, with reproductive rights. You know, can we build other structures in this country to provide reproductive rights to the people who need it in the states they need it? And, you know, it will be terrible in all these places, but we'll have a bifurcated country um, yeah. on that issue. And maybe, again, if they get their way on the issue of, of gay marriage and the use of of contraception, um, we just may have to sort of figure a way to sort of keep them sort of penned up uh, yeah. politically. Uh, because, you know, you know, Nancy Pelosi a few months ago said, we need the old Republican Party back. You know, and I said, well, actually, you know, I did it <laughs> no. against that in a piece I write. Not really. You know, you, right. you're not, under, I, I know why that sounds good and makes her sound reasonable. Yeah. We the old two party system back. You know, there's there is value to the two party system, but not a two party system where one party is, you know, still held hostage to, by 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 extremists, which who are fueled by hatred and paranoia and, 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 and bigotry and racism. So, um, you know, I you know, we're in 
you know, I think the technical term is we're in a pickle. But I also think understanding how we got here and realizing it's not just one guy. The problem is not Trump. It's Trumpism, as I know you, you've said many times. And that Trumpism is nothing new but a con- continuation or an intensification yes. or the, you know, you know, the, 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 the logical <clears throat> conclusion of why everything that's happened before that. If you have that understanding, which I hope I convey in the book, then maybe you can think realistically about how to move forward at this moment in time. Yeah, and I, I think with um, Pelosi and and even when when Joe Biden refers to MAGA Republicans, that that's a line they have to walk because you don't want to be insulting all Republicans for purely political reasons. Right. But if you do understand as, as you help us to how deeply uh, seated this, uh, not a cravenness is, you know, the, the willingness to go all in and seed ground to the worst elements in our society. You understand that we don't, we need an entirely new, party, whether it's a Republican party or some other party, uh, in order to break free. Um, because even though this has been going on for a long time, it's, it's not like it's the same as it's been, it gets worse over time. And when, you know, between 2017 and 2019, essentially we had a hundred percent of elected Republicans, uh, representing, the worst elements of our society, which just, I think, helps explain why 12 million more people voted for Donald, because the disease metastasized. No, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think I, I like the metaphor of the disease. I could call it a political disease. And psychosis is when, as, as you know, as an, as, a, as an expert in this field, is when you don't recognize reality, when you're detached right. from reality. And if you believe that the election wasn't, you know, was stolen from Donald Trump, then you are not in sync with reality. And, you know, it's, it's a deep problem. It's a, it's a deep psychosis, psychosis and viruses wax and wane. They get stronger, they get weaker. You sometimes beat them back and they, they mutate and they come back and, you know, we've learned a lot about viruses in the last few years yeah. and it's very hard to get rid of them. Totally, you know, totally get rid of them out of the bloodstream, but you know, disease like polio, it got beaten back, but also it's coming back now. It's an emergency in New York. So you got to, you know, be vigilant in, in dealing um, with, with, with all this stuff. And um, it, it's, and I know, I know it sounds hard and tough. I think history actually, you know, in some ways is inspiring you know, we always think this is the worst time ever, but Mac- right. the McCarthy period was actually worse for many people who right. lost their jobs and livelihoods, and the paranoia was just even more extensive in some ways than it, than it is now. Yeah. You know, but history, I think, is inspiring. You know, we made it through a, a, a civil war, and you know, with seven hundred thousand dead Americans. Uh, but the country rebuilt itself and found a way to go forward with a lot of problems, reconstruction and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and you also see like, you know, nothing is immutable. Right. The, the Republican Party began very gloriously with all the right, fantastic principles of trying to restrain slavery, not end it exactly at that point, but expand economic opportunity for, you know, middle or low income Americans. We're talking about white men, of course, but they, you know, they building the infrastructure as what we would call it now, creating um, free colleges for agricultural um, knowledge. I mean, that was the Republican party. It was about freedom and economic opportunity. And it rose out of the ashes of the Whigs who collapsed because they fell apart over the issue of slavery. Right. Half the Whig party, you know, was, to varying degrees opposed to slavery and the Southern Whigs wanted to, you know, not challenge it. Right. Um, and the party split and fell apart and remnants of the Northern Whigs joined with other groups to form the Republican party in 1854. And six years later, Abraham Lincoln was elected president as a Republican. Um, so I think, you know, I, you know, Maybe it's a way of taking refuge from the from the awfulness of the present moment. But history, you know, you know, does 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 have things to teach us. But also, I think 
giving giving you sort of a way to feel that the problem, you know, it does show the problem is bigger, but also yeah. that it's been here a long time. So it's mm-hmm. not unique or new. It's, it's somewhat different, but it's not as if we're confronting something that our fellow Americans and human beings of years past have not confronted elsewhere. Yeah. And hopefully um, it we will confront it more directly because I think that as you write is part of the problem. It hasn't been confronted in the way it needs to be in order for this uh, psychosis to be rooted out. And um, I'm just, I'm curious, you you probably finished writing the book a few months ago. Uh, I think a lot of what's happened in the interim uh, was um, borne out by this history that you you teach us about it it it's just an, another chapter in um, how these things worsen and unfold when not confronted. Is there anything in the last you know over the last couple of months that that's happened with Donald and and the response to that or uh, you know what what's happening with the Democrats that surprises you or gives you any hope or makes you feel <laughs> cynical about uh, what's next for us as a country, especially with the midterms coming up? Well, I mean, I think just politically, you know, uh, it's been obvious that as that the headwinds against the Democrats, these historic headwinds maybe less than what they felt like a few months ago. Uh, I'm not making predictions about what happens in the house. Uh, I can predict what happens after the election. If Republicans win, there'll be 37 Hunter Biden investigations. Merrick Garland will be impeached. Joe Biden probably will be impeached. Um, They'll go back to Benghazi and go back to the emails. So they'll, they'll investigate the FBI, the FBI raid. They'll, you know, bring Chris Ray in. I mean, it's just going to be a complete um, clown show um, and chaos. And, you know, it's going to be incredibly hard for anything else to get attention. And they'll all be there, you know, doing the dirty work of Donald Trump as he seeks revenge on his perceived enemies. So that will happen. I mean, I'm pretty confident with that prediction, but I'm not confident in predicting what will happen on election day. Um, I do think, think that the you know the big to agree there's been any shift since i finished writing the book at the beginning of june has been biden's willingness to raise this issue yeah extremism and i mean i've been writing for you know a a couple years now at least through the biden presidency i guess not quite few years, but through the Biden presidency, that there needed to be a direct and honest conversation about the threat to democracy posed by Trumpism and MAGA extremism. And that unfortunately, the only way that conversation can really proceed is if Biden initiates it. There's nobody else who has the the, the bully pulpit, big enough microphone to, to get that attention. And the speech that he did a couple of weeks ago when she talked about MAGA extremism and moving towards semi-fascism. I think that was, you know, a tremendously important corrective. I think there's actually a lot more that can be said about it, but I think it was also very difficult for him. To yeah. do this. A guy who wants to unite the party and talk about the soul of the country, as you know, we talked about uh, earlier, if you want to start calling someone fascist, it's very easy for the media, the other side to say, well, you're the fascist. So why are you doing this? You're making things more divisive by right. saying this, you know, you know, they try to overthrow the government and you call them out for doing that. And they say, well, you're, you know, you're being decisive, you're being divisive by attacking us right. um, as being anti-democratic. So I think that really, kickstarted a conversation that needs to continue before the midterms and obviously after the midterms, you know, just to, when a speech like that, he can start helping to organize people's thoughts and and create some organizing principles for how we think about Trump, Trumpism, the Republicans, and also, you know, the more immediate midterm elections. So that to me was, you know, I wouldn't say a game changer, but, um, uh, you know, uh, a, a change in the tilt of the playing field. So that, that was good. And I think, you know, on, on, on the, on the other side, you know, it's, it's hardly surprising 
uh, but Trump upping the ante on the authoritarianism by saying he will pardon the people who committed violence to stop the peaceful transfer of power. I mean, that is, you know, it's, you know, that is, I don't want to say crossing the Rubicon because he's a thousand miles past the Rubicon <laughs> already. Right. Yeah. Uh, but that's, I think a really major milestone. That's a yeah. real ratcheting up. And I hope it doesn't become the case, but I can see some time from now, year or years looking back as that being, wow, that was a real turning point, a real, movement a real milestone um because you know to say that he that is basically excusing the violence he, he's come close in the past to excusing it or trying to deny it happened whatever but to say that these people deserve presidential pardons that is basically saying i excuse it and i won't mind if you do more of it and that yeah. you know that is you know you know in spinal tap terms that's not just an 11. That's like a 12, 13, 14, or a 59. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and all while uh, committing espionage by allegedly selling. Well, yeah. I mean, that's all, yeah, that's all bad, but that's, um, <laughs> that's just, that's just an indication of his complete disregard for, for laws and the rule of laws and the, you know, the criminal justice system. Well, um, he comes by it honestly, I'm afraid. I have yeah, so. yeah, I mean, we, 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 know, we, we know that was there. I mean, the, yeah. I mean there's, nothing, there's nothing really surprising at all in the, in the FBI raid story here. I mean, that's just that every, every element to it, you know, has a thousand different antecedents with him. Yeah, exactly. Um, David, I you've been so generous with your time. I know you have a, the rest of the week is going to be crazy for you, but um, I, I really appreciate your coming on to talk about your, I, I think, vitally important book, American Psychosis, A Historical Investigation of How the Republican Party Went Crazy. Everybody go out and get it, read it. It's going to help you not just make sense of how we got here, but uh, what the possibilities might be going forward. And hopefully, David, in the next few months, I can have you back to talk about how the Democrats are going to change things for the better instead of uh, the too scary to mention alternative. Well, I hope that's true. And we've seen some progress um, in recent weeks. So no, this was really a great conversation. Thank you for, for reading the book, taking its ideas seriously, and giving people a really clear sense of what it is so they can make an informed decision about buying the book. So I, I, I do right. appreciate it. And if anyone's interested in, in, in my Rland newsletter, they can just look me up on Twitter or go to uh, davidcorn.com. Excellent. Thank you so much, David. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you so much to David Korn, a Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones, journalist, uh, multiple New York Times bestselling author, author again most recently of American Psychosis and proprietor of the newsletter Arlen. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation and in part, in large part, because it was based on um, his writing and my having read his excellent new book. Uh, so thank you to David. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And uh, thank you as always for your comments. We will be back next Tuesday uh, for the next strategy session with the Nerd Avengers. Uh, that's at uh, 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific at youtube.com slash Politicon. And of course, next Thursday, we will have our interview show at what time? 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, also at youtube.com slash Politicon. And while you're on Politicon's YouTube page, please subscribe. It doesn't cost anything. It just, it's so much better for the show if uh, Politicon has more subscribers while you're there like the episode leave another comment and if you click on this bell right here uh, you will be sure to be notified anytime a new video drops whether it's an episode or some of the shorter videos I've been doing in between um, and obviously you can listen to the show in podcast form 
uh, at Apple or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you could leave a five-star review, that would be awesome. It really does help other people find the show. And that is it for tonight. Thank you again so much for being here. And I will see you next Tuesday. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Stay safe and be kind.